Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards, dealer, I'm feeling it hit me, yeah, I got swagger, they see me, see me strutting, all sweating daggers, believe it, I'm the real thing, but I gotta switch it on. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Grid. I am so excited to bring you a very special guest live from the capital of chess in America, St. Louis. I have Grandmaster Peter Svidler, an eight-time Russian chess champion with titles spanning from 94 to 2017. He's been ranked as high as number four in the world. He's also a renowned commentator on Chess 24, who I'm thrilled to be working with for several events in the Grand Chess Store. Peter is also a card game aficionado, though I have to get this out of the way. He prefers PLO and Hearthstone to the two-card variety that our podcast is about. But on the other hand, one of the concepts of this podcast and inspirations was that the grid we've used for chess for centuries has come to totally dominate the theory and study of the most popular form of poker, No Limit Hold'em. So with no further ado, I'm very happy to introduce for A7 Suited, the strongest chess grandmaster who I've never heard anyone say anything bad about, Peter Spidler. Welcome to the grid. Hello, everyone. Yeah, tell us about this hand. This hand has been played very recently on Run at Once Poker. And I obviously uh, play PLO, but PLO sadly doesn't run as often as I would like. The, the hand we're discussing, I played it solely for the reason that No Limit 100 was running, and no PLO was running, I think, above PLO 10. And uh, this hand came maybe 40 minutes into the two-table session, which was the highest. I mean, there, there were, the pool was uh, big enough for two tables, but not more. And obviously it's anonymous, but you could sort of guess who the people are by this point. If you, if you kind of pay attention, you have a pretty decent idea that the guy at your second table is that guy from your first table. You've noted some things about. So the villain in the hand really likes to play hands, and he's extremely spewy pre, and uh, you can, you can three-bet uh, quite wide for value, and in general... You should be playing pots with this guy, but also, he's also very sticky. Doesn't really fold, uh, doesn't really fold flops. And this is where I start start feeling extremely self conscious about myself because I think even talking PLO strat in 2019, I would feel stupid. But talking no limit strat, I please disregard everything I say apart from the reads. The reads I think were reasonably spot on, but I I generally don't know what to do with them in this game. So the hand uh, we are like 110 bigs deep, uh, effective uh, and. Uh, uh, positions. I think I'm in the small. Yeah, I'm in the small, and villain is on, on the button. So it goes, uh, and it's uh, four-handed. So cutoff opens uh, to two and a half. Villain on the button, three bets to uh, nine, and I find myself with the very beautiful-looking a seven of diamonds in the small blind. And I mean, he is three betting. By this point, it felt like he's like any holding at this point because he's bored and uh, why not? And I felt that uh, I need to continue and I'm not continuing by calling this. At least it felt to me like it's wrong to me, uh, wrong to continue by calling. So I four bet to uh, 23, which is maybe low, but once again, sizing's 
I've never done much solver work even in PLO. I have done none whatsoever <laughs> in No Limit. I have no idea what the correct sizing of a 4-bet here is. I chose 23. The original razor folded, button called, and the flop is 3-6 queen with one diamond. Once again, I have no idea what my supposed line, what the correct line here is, and I felt that I'm supposed to c-bet because otherwise I really don't know what I'm doing, but I, I'm not, it didn't feel like I should be c-betting large, and unless the turn is a diamond, or if I actually bing something, I'm probably done with it because if he calls such a dry flop, he must have a hand of some sort, and from, once again, from earlier hands with the same supposedly the same guy on the other table. He's not folding a pair. Like, I'm <laughs> Sorry, so, uh, three barrels will probably not make him fold a pair. So you have a seven of diamonds and the flop is three, six queen, rainbow with a one, one, one diamond. diamond. One okay. diamond, yeah. And once again, sizing is probably completely incorrect, but uh, I chose to bet like quarter pot. I mean, there is a very useful <laughs> useful shortcut there saying quarter pot. So I bet, I bet 13. He called very quickly. And at this point, Unless I, unless I catch something, I'm sort of done with it. And uh, the turn is uh, the 10 of clubs, and it's now complete rainbow. I have no idea what he has, but uh, I have ace high. And once again, prior experiences lead, lead me to, to, to think that he caught something, and once again, he's not folding. And it feels like if I, if I bet turn, I will have to bet river, and it just doesn't feel very profitable. So I'm basically in the check give up. Uh, I check, he checks, and the river is a four. Some gut shots include a four. With my line, he's definitely not folding anything that has a piece. I'm checking, and I'm checking to give up. I check, and he bets 42 into what was like 70-odd, I think. And here, a, a number of things happens in quick succession. I go to click fold, and I miss it. <laughs> <laughs> I click call, and I have just enough time to say to myself, oh my fucking god, what have I done? And then the pot gets shipped to me, and the villain insta leaves. Oh. <laughs> and I think this hand uh, kind of exemplifies how I play No Limit. It's basically just me clicking buttons, <laughs> often not clicking the one the buttons I'm intending to click, and so sometimes actually uh, being randomly correct in, in weird spots. And he showed up with uh, Jack-9 of spades, which was a float, which became a double, uh, an open-ender on the turn. And then he obviously was Jack-9, he's not beating anything. So I guess he played that hand better than I have. But if not for the misclick, he would have won a decent-sized pot there. Oh, wow, that's so funny. Have you done that a lot, the misclick? Not not a lot, but that was a notable one. That, it's not a huge pot in terms of actual money, but uh, in terms of, like, really fabulous hero calls, which you were not supposed to, which you, you were not intending to make a really, really stunning hero call, and there it was. Do you think it was a Freudian mouse slip? Possibly, yeah. Possibly. Uh, I mean, you could maybe call with ace high there uh, against the villain, as I described, because as as we as we know from results, he he could be just completely empty there. But I wasn't planning to. Yeah, because you could have like ace jack, but he'd probably check that. Yeah, I mean, some of the things he for some reason elects to to bluff on the river beat me, <laughs> and uh, yeah. But once again, I the reason I chose this hand is is honestly this is how I feel about my limit, my no limit. I I have no idea what I'm doing. So no limit. Why don't you like it? You said that you, you... Was this almost instantaneous that when you started playing poker, you decided No Limit is not the format for me? Well, at the very, very beginning that we were talking ages ago, I played some sit-and-goes, and those obviously were No Limit, but uh, uh, those were just soul-crushing. I mean, the, the, the tedium of, of playing those things was just uh, destroying me, and I, I moved away from that uh, quite quickly. 
BLO just considered it seemed to me like a better fit. Uh, you know, there's there's more action and also once again Phil. I think Phil played a reasonably large part in that because I number of Phil videos I've seen in my life is probably sort of three figures by this point. So and and he does record some no limit content, but most of it is PLO. And uh, listening to him, it's hard not to not to get very interested in the game. And then I started playing uh, mixes, and uh, I think if I if mixes ran consistently on stars, for instance, I mean, because really it is stars, man, and they're not spread very far, very far. Probably eight game is what I would be, uh, I would, would be playing for preference, uh, but because they're not, uh, it's sort of PLO all the way. So when you got the pot chip to you with this A7 suit in hand, um, how'd you feel? Did you feel kind of dumb that you mouse slipped or were you like excited to win the pot? Sort of both. I also felt this will make a fantastic, like this being Rio, I actually had to manually click, copy the clipboard and then copy it from, from clipboard to other places. But I felt that, you know, this will make for a, a very nice uh, message to send a, a few of my fr <laughs> friends on Skype and other places because, you know, they will also get a chuckle out of it. I mean, it's a pleasant, it's a pleasant little surprise, but mainly I just felt dumb because you really aren't supposed to, the button are big enough you're not supposed to miss those buttons did you write something in chat afterwards no. because he left immediately first of all he left immediately and secondly this is Rio you can't write in chat you can emote in chat there are varying schools of thoughts on this uh, in, in in various card games but uh, if we uh, if, if I'm allowed to mention Hearthstone for a second there any kind of use of emotes in Hearthstone is instantly considered BM BM stands for bad manners it basically is so whenever you use an emote uh, people will, regardless of how you intended, even if you didn't intend it to uh, to try and tilt your opponent, people will immediately assume the worst of you, and they will assume that you are trying to to be sarcastic and 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 douchey. And uh, I generally don't uh, don't emote much uh, when I play poker. And uh, one of the more reliable note-taking strategies I have was uh, has always been, in particular on stars where people have an op an option to say things at, at great length if they want to, was to mark down people who have a lot to say in chat as idiots uh, because I think serious players don't waste their energy on that obviously there are exceptions but that I think is one of the more reliable instant notes you can take just color it with as somebody you want to be playing against if you get a huge missive about after a lost pot you lost a pot who cares and do you, do you agree with that that Emojis is mostly going to be BM. In my experience, yeah. I mean, people spamming emojis on uh, on Rio generally. The choice of uh, emotes uh, available on Rio, I think, obviously by design, is is very very benign. There's very, I mean, they don't they don't give you an option of saying anything bad. It's all you know, GG and wow and oh no and uh, YOLO and things. But even even that, like if uh, if somebody wins a medium sized pot and then spams five thank you thank yous in a row. You kind of make a mental note. There's always a way to make a very civil language mean something different. Yeah, than of what course. It means. Yeah, there's there's a lot of, uh, of of memes on that topic as well. But generally, yeah, I think that's a very viable early note taking strategy. You just uh, you pay attention to people's use of communication and people overusing this particular mode of communication are probably not there for the right reasons. So PLO is your favorite poker format, that's fair to say? Yeah. You know, I'm sure you are sometimes, you sometimes listen to uh, Joey Ingram, and he likes to call the PLO the great game. As a chess player, whenever I hear that, I can't help but cringe. <laughs> Do you feel the same way? Just because, you know, chess has been around for so many centuries that, like, when yeah, I hear but, it, I'm like, uh, ah. 
no, I don't. It doesn't. It doesn't make me. It doesn't make me uh, cringe necessarily because I mean he quite clearly means that in poker terms and of the poker variants. I think this viewpoint is nothing wrong with it whatsoever. You can make an argument. It's not. You can make an argument that I don't know some stud variants are, are more interesting. Nobody will buy it, but you can make that argument. But I don't think he is trying to compare it to uh, to other games. And and in general, like chess and poker, demand a very similar skill set, but are very very different as games so why why would there even you don't need the comparison the comparison is sort of immediately invalid one is a full information game and one other no one isn't isn't so it's kind of whatever what is it that struck you about plo besides the fact that of course you watched all the phil galfon videos i mean i have logged a decent amount of hands let's say uh, i think i have maybe between 50 and 100,000 uh, Zoom 500 hands on uh, on stars, and as such, I uh, people have uh, people who are actually good PLO players have come across me a great deal. Uh, hopefully, they didn't know that was me, and I'm not planning to announce <laughs> my screen name on stars. But if you ask them, if you give them the screen name and ask them to sort of uh, recall what they thought of me as a player, I mean. I am not a great player in general. I mean, I could be, but I've done some work. I'm not. I, I very rarely felt I was the worst player at the table, but I'm not great, and I am definitely some kind of a what's the word for that? Uh, fish rag? <laughs> Bad rag? I mean. But you made money. Not necessarily, no. <laughs> and uh, for somebody like that, uh, PLO offers. Uh, I mean, the games always run. The games provide a lot of action. What's not to like? <laughs> And did you ever t- consider taking it even further, your poker career? Did it ever cross your mind that maybe this would be the thing that you would do and your chess career would start to, you know, recede? Not really. Compared to somebody who has been uh, an inspiration in that regard as well, uh, Alexander Grishuk, who uh, also no longer really plays poker, but has played a ton of poker a lot higher than I am and a lot better than I ever did. He started when you were really supposed to start if you wanted to be uh, really successful. He started, he coincided with the online boom when the Americans were still playing. And I started sort of semi-seriously maybe 10, 11 years ago. And uh, obviously saying in 2019 that games were hard in 2010 is kind of stupid. Uh, Obviously compared to today they weren't, but they were already not nearly as soft as they were uh, in the golden age. It never really felt to me like... I should make the commitment because I mean I'm I'm self-aware enough to understand that I'm not bad at it but from where I am uh, to get to this being a viable alternative to what I'm doing over the chessboard I would need to put a lot more work in if I am to put a lot of work into something it should still be chess and I'm sure your chess fans are certainly very thankful of that. That said, I, I have to ask, Sasha Grishuk, of course, was able to combine these things, although he doesn't do like all the commentary and whatnot that you do. Um, but with Sasha, was there something that you felt from talking about him, some kind of like poker skill that he had that even if you had started a little bit earlier, it would be hard for you to emulate? I think the biggest difference between the two of us is that he is just completely untiltable. I don't go on sort of uh, rages and uh, you know, I don't suddenly start playing 100, 135 or something. But uh, he is just completely unflappable. Losses don't get to him. He continues playing what is pretty close to his A game. And uh, 
apart from the technical things, and for instance, uh, I don't know, I suppose he probably doesn't mind by this point. Like, I, I always don't know uh, exactly how to approach these things because, uh, like, if I know, it doesn't mean that everybody should know. But he played a lot of hypers at some point, very high, like the highest uh, hypers uh, that were running on stars. Sittingos. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He transitioned yeah. from PLO into playing mm-hmm. hypers. And once he made that decision, he actually sat down and ran solvers for like two weeks and, you know, produced like 80 pages of equations. And I never had that, like, the commitment to do that is sort of, um, I was never really ready to do that. No, I mean, he is a poker player and, I, and I'm not. I think would be the easiest way to describe it. He, he, he is an actual poker player and I am a somewhat talented amateur. And do you think that difference is just a matter of interest? Maybe he was more No, no, I, I never lacked for interest. It's a matter of commitment. Commitment, I yeah. see. So he switched over to Nolan and Hold'em, but you never really went into that direction after getting hooked by PLO. You went to the mix games. Yeah, I played I played a ton of mix, but not, not No Limit. I mean, obviously No Limit is part of mix, but uh, one-eighth of my volume. So with uh, with Grishuk, you said that he, he doesn't tilt. Obviously, that's a phenomenal skill to have as a poker player, and some ke- people are kind of born with it. Some people work a lot harder at it. Um, do you see that reflected also in his chess game, and how about you? I think it always... I mean, it's it should come across exactly like that in the, for, for people who have watched any Grishuk at all in their lives. I mean, uh, in order to be able to maintain the, the level he maintain, maintained for decades with the time issues that he has... You really need to be in complete control of your emotions to be able to play under this amount of pressure consistently. And he has been a top, I don't know, 10 player, top 15 player. He's like the the entire career, more or less, being by far the the, the biggest time trouble merchant out there. So, yeah, I think it's, it's quite clear from his chest as well. As for me... I don't actually tilt much in chess at all. It's much easier to control my, my emotions uh, playing chess than it is uh, playing poker. Yeah, I always think poker is a little bit easier to tilt in than chess because you, unless you're playing heads up, you have more downtime, kind of stew. Yeah. In chess, you're kind of forced into the flow of thinking. First that, and secondly, like for me, when I think about tilting in chess, it's always post-game, not during the game. During the game, I think I'm very good at keeping my emotions in control and continuing to play as well as I, in general, uh, am capable on the day. I mean, there are some very bad days where it feels like nothing you calculate is correct, nothing you think about it maybe has any merit. But that's not tilt. That's just having a really, really slow day, and I don't have a recipe against that, and those come more often these days than they used to. But for me, uh, tilt comes sort of afterwards. If I have a really, really rotten day... I sometimes start doing weird things the next game. Once again, I've identified this as a problem a long time ago, but I'm not at 100% fighting against it. I mean, this this still occasionally happens. Like, you, you play a really bad game, and then you show up at the game the next day, and you start doing things which, like, you, you, you will struggle to describe as anything else but, like, a death wish of sorts. Like, you, you, you go for extremely risky things which you know shouldn't be correct. You more or less know they aren't correct. But you still do them because you, you feel like you need to break the pattern. You need, you need to do, you know, something to avenge what happened on the previous day. And, uh, yeah, that's a problem. But in, in general, I think, uh, yeah, for me, poker has always been a lot more tilt-inducing than, uh, than chess. Yeah, and it seems like people who are apt to tilt will survive a lot better in chess than they will in poker. Because in the end, like, your, your, your overall skill is just so relevant in chess. So even if you aren't in a great mood... yeah. Uh, in general, if you can trust the autopilot well enough, you won't struggle uh, struggle that much uh, that much in chess. Although, uh, I mean, 
a, a good game on autopilot is very important uh, in uh, in anything if you can sort of trust your hand not to make too many really glaring mistakes. It will also serve you uh, serve you quite well in poker on, on a day where for some reason. In chess, you're known for sometimes getting up in the middle of the game because you often like to see the board more by not looking at the board. Now that's gonna sound really weird to a lot of poker players who don't play a lot of chess. Can you explain that? Like why is it sometimes better to look at a game by not looking at it? To start sort of from a technical viewpoint, none of us at the level where, you know, where I am, or frankly, this level is not required for this. None of the people who play chess semi-professionally, let alone professionally, really needs the board to know where the pieces are. You can uh, get rid of that walking stick at, at, at any point you like. You, you, don't, you don't need this crutch. It's, uh, you, you know where they are, you, you will still be able to calculate without looking, uh, looking at the board actively. And for me also, the act of looking at the pieces, my eyes get tired. So there's really very little benefit to me uh, being uh, at the board when it's not my move. And you will also notice uh, me sort of not looking at the pieces even when I am at the board. They're not going to tell me suddenly that they moved while I was away. <laughs> They're still on the same squares. But the thing is, when I get up, I sort of i am prone to tuning my game out and looking at other games and starting to think about those, which is obviously not best practice, and I wouldn't necessarily advise this to anybody. It's been my my MO my entire career. I uh, have never been, you know, the person who uh, is sort of uniquely concentrated on the on, on the game that I play. It obviously very much depends on what's happening on my board. If, if there is a, an immensely complicated tactical struggle going on and I know that I haven't worked out what's happening yet, it's kind of happening move by move and my opponent has like five different answers to what I just played and I, I don't have much time and it's important for me to work out as much as, as I can on his time so that I don't have to burn all this time when he finally makes the reply. Then obviously even if I get up I will continue calculating solely my stuff and not really get too distracted. But in a, in a, quieter, in a quieter position I do like to kind of get the lay of the land of the tournament. I normally like, you don't play matches very often, so there's normally like five or six games uh, you can look at and, and try and figure out what's happening there. I'm a curious person by nature. So. But for poker players, a lot of people are kind of bemoaning the fact that, and some people are celebrating it, I guess it depends on who you are, that poker is becoming a lot more like chess in that the way that people study is a lot more reminiscent of chess with databases and solvers and memorization, yeah. you know, and visualization. So this podcast called The Grid, there's a lot of pre-flop charts, post-flop scenarios where it's not just about reviewing something, it's also about actually being able to recall it and integrate it in-game. And it seems to me like you have a very strong memory. I mean, I don't know how you would rate it compared to other elite chess players, but certainly among the average population, it must be in like the top percent or Pro- percent. Probably, although, once again, uh, and, and this is uh, something I, I keep on telling young people, for instance, when, when I'm asked about you know good practices uh, you can try and instill in yourself, I will not be able to recall exactly what age that was, but that was probably mid-20s. Because from a very young age, my coaches and people around me, people who sort of wished me well, were telling me, make copious notes. If you analyze something, make copious notes, note everything down. You will need this at some point. And I was looking at them and I understand, you know, they mean they mean well, they're not trying to insult me or anything, but I will never forget anything in my life. Why would I need this? And then somewhere around when I was maybe 25, 26, I was invited to show a game of mine to the kids somewhere. And I realized that I played that game like a year and a half ago. And I need to bring it up from the database 
to recall move orders. Like I have the I have a picture in my head of what the game was. I have ideas on what I what I did correctly, what I did wrong. But actual move orders, I I realized I don't remember, and and that was just such a shock. And it feels like your body is betraying you. Basically, it feels in this particular case, obviously not your body but your mind. But like it feels like a part of you is malfunctioning, and it was an incredibly unpleasant experience. And since then, I, I have been t- taking copious notes, and my memory is still probably uh, better than you know Gen Pop, but. It's not as good as it used to be, and uh, it does require help. Even among very strong chess players, this ability to remember every game that they've played for the last year is not omnipresent. There are some people who don't have that, right? Sure, and it also becomes worse with age, obviously, so it's a, it's a continuous process. I understand what you're saying, and uh, it's it's an issue, and uh, we, we see this all the time in like post-game interviews, and we speak about this on air, that no matter how hard you work, if you did not repeat the line that somebody plays against you on the day prior to the game and you haven't looked at it in like half a year, your chances of actually remembering the finer details, the finer points of it are, are basically zilch. In poker, it becomes very interesting because people can actually, right now the rules are such that you can pull out your phone in between hands and look at charts. I don't know if they might change as, you know, some of these solver programs become even faster it, it could who knows I, I believe they might change but uh yeah people can literally review their preflop ranges for various stack sizes um or shove ranges in between hands which i've always thought is a mixed bag because obviously poker is not exactly like chess so on one hand you're fine-tuning your ranges but on the other hand anybody who is at the table who sees you looking at those ranges now knows what your range might be yeah that's that's an interesting dynamic which is very very unfamiliar to chess players obviously because uh, you know the act of pulling your pulling your mobile phone out during the game would uh, would get you into some hot water these days has famously been demonstrated on a number of occasions it's kind of fun fun for me to talk about it because of just how alien the idea is to uh, to us as chess players to actually have access to all this during the game but I don't know how much my insight on this topic is worth because it's just it's just not something that any of us apart from the ones who are cheating has any experience with well no of course not and and that's important to note to everybody that uh it is cheating to use your mobile phone at all in a chess game. In fact, in most important tournaments, they wand you when you come in yeah. so that they can be sure that there are no electronics on you. Yeah, these days you, you can't even bring in a pen, let alone a watch. You can wear clothes, and that's about it. And the same applies to poker in in a hand. So it would definitely be cheating to look at any kind of chart during a hand. Sure. And some people have actually given a penalty. Not, I don't know if they were the person was actually eliminated, but somebody... I read about in the World Series was actually um, given a, a, a penalty, which is quite appropriate for looking at a, a shove chart while in a hand after the action had already begun. Um, the cards had already been dealt, and and that seems appropriate. I just have a feeling that as chess and poker kind of converge, that we're going to see more of that. That there's even less ability to like bring up these tools in game, which is actually going to favor good memories even more. It seems to me, from what you were saying, that um, you really have an elite memory. At what part of your success do you think is attributable to this like photographic memory? Some, but I don't think it's that much, to be honest. I think, you know, the question exactly why am I good, if I'm good at all, has not been, you know, a, a, a primary one for me. What I realized at some point is that I am an exceptionally gifted practical player. 
I feel quite safe saying that and uh, you know me I, I generally if I end up saying something good about myself it means that I'm really convinced this is true you know? <laughs> and I am a very very gifted practical player I understand sort of uh, you know important breakpoints in the game where it like obviously in a chess game there are a ton of decisions where yes there is maybe a mathematically correct decision but the price of that decision is not very high like the best move it is i don't know plus 060 it gives you a slightly better position and the second best move will be plus 050 and you are not giving up much by not finding the best move in this position but there are breakpoints in in games not in every game but in in, in most games i guess where it's very important that you notice that this decision is actually kind of defining and you dedicate your energy to actually in that moment to to solving it properly i i understand initiative quite well i'm a very good player with initiative but i think the skills are my my most prominent actual useful skills they are more to do with actually being able to deal with the challenge of playing a game once it started like memory is is much more about preparation. It's also pattern recognition. It's also all these things. It's factored in, obviously. But when a chess player talks about memory, it's by far the largest part. It's a chess player talking about being able uh, to reproduce the tremendous amount of opening work that he had to do over the course of his career. This is the biggest use of memory uh, we all have these days. We have to do a, a tremendous amount of opening work just to keep up with, with the field. And then actually being able to remember what that work said is is hugely important and that has never really been you know a huge part of my success i always felt that if you give me a playable position by move 15 where i don't know anything and my opponent doesn't know anything i'm okay with that i don't really mind at all um hence of course your interest in uh, fisher random chess 960 which is something that poker players always seem to be very interested in in which the pieces are shuffled on the back row now you also mentioned that um you're a great practical player and i thought it was really amazing that um not only as we were watching anand play today not only did you guess his moves but you even guessed the amount of time he would spend to make them which of course is, is that yeah, practical skill experience. yeah i mean that particular that particular moment i locked out i like there is no solid rule on how much you will spend in this position and the fact that i came pretty close to to, to the actual amount I, I can't take too much credit <laughs> but yeah i mean you get you get the feeling for these things you, you you sort of understand the game flow you understand what will be required later for those who haven't seen the the, the show which will be the majority of you there was a very very sharp position on the board anand uh, was looking for a tactical solution which wasn't readily available at all and he had i believe nine minutes to start with at that position by a, a versus three for his opponent and yeah i mean you can say that you are probably not supposed to spend like more than half of your remaining time on this very difficult decision without feeling extremely uncomfortable uh, about leaving yourself with so little time for the rest of it but the fact that it actually transpired like this is a happy coincidence uh, more than anything else and in, in terms of practical play, I notice that some poker players do struggle with that as they become so fascinated with the game and not always necessarily pinpointing where they're losing the most money. And the kind of shift for poker players to look at programs which tell them the size of a mistake in big blinds really reminds me a lot of the way that chess players, of course, when analyzing in engines, they look at their mistakes in this metric of pawns, although now that's also sometimes shifting. Yeah, yeah, centipawns, yeah. First time I heard the expression centipawns, I thought, hmm, 
this is where we are now, yeah. Like uh, uh, your precision level measured in centipoles, like negative centipoles per game. Like well, what's your what's the level of delta between optimal play and what you're actually demonstrating in a game? And Magnus at his best probably has a, a delta of I don't know five to ten centipoles, and uh, normal people will have a, a lot higher number there. I was thinking actually of Alpha Zero also, where or Lila, where it's not actually even in pawns, but in expected value. Yeah, and that's that's really almost directly uh, corresponding to how poker pe- players view the search for the best line. Yeah, there's there's obviously a lot of parallels, but um, this is why I said that the skill set required for the two games is is very very similar and appears to be getting similar as time goes by, but the games themselves uh, remain very, very different. Although it's interesting because as chess and poker become more similar in the way that they're both practiced and studied, it doesn't follow that it's as easy for chess players to break into poker because um, they're, they're so demanding now. Because if, yeah. if poker becomes as demanding as chess was, where you have to study so many hours to be one of the best players, then it's simply impossible to, you know, play both at the highest level, although you could certainly flip back and forth maybe in your career, but it would require quite a commitment. For sure, yeah, and uh, this is why I don't think there are, I mean, outside of uh, Sasha specifically. I mean, a lot of chess players uh, tried poker, and I know of a number of chess players who were quite good, but uh, I don't think there are very many examples, or frankly, any examples apart from him, of people playing both games at a sort of properly elite level and he was in his disciplines definitely one of the um, best players in the world I was going to mention Magnus Carlsen because I know that uh, he does love poker I'm not sure what his level is but I've um, heard stories but I haven't sort of seen stories I played some poker with him some online and some live but not a lot in a long long time ago so I can't, can't really say the world champion Magnus Carlsen of course and yet it seems to me that in the way that he approaches chess he's got some gamble in him once again when you when you use the word gamble in, in uh, applying it to chess it's uh, it's not really gamble it's more that that deviation from a mathematical approach that we've been describing because if I say I'm very comfortable playing a completely a position completely unknown to me as long as it's also unknown to to my opponent. Magnus takes this and kind of multiplies this by by a couple of orders of magnitude because he believes, as I guess I do, but he can can prove he is correct. His results kind of show that he is correct. He believes that uh, he is just better than anybody else in the world at simply playing chess if you take the theory out of it. It's not exactly gambling, but it is I guess what you would describe as a gamble if you needed to describe something as a gamble uh, in chess. I guess I was also thinking of gamble almost in the reverse as well, in that uh, the the game, not the hand, the game that he played against Fabiano Caruana, the final game of the World Championship match where everybody was so shocked about this draw offer. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And it was connected to his estimation of yeah. his chances in the tiebreak, which are, of course, quite high. Yeah, exactly. That was that was a purely EV decision, both game 12 uh, against Karekin. But that wasn't so striking because he was black and uh, and he didn't have to play sharply for a win. He wasn't black, he was white, but uh, Karekin has a very solid opening repertoire. But even more strikingly, uh, the game you're talking about, the last game of his match against Fabiano, where uh, Fabiano actually uh, went all out playing for a win, and that resulted in a very sharp position, which Magnus, I mean, at some point you could make an argument had a mathematical win but even in the final position you kind of take him against anybody in this position to win it if he continues playing at least some of the time but he uh, had i think a very clear-cut idea in his head of just how big his perceived edge against fabi in rapid was 
and he decided that's higher than my chances of winning this position, so he just offered a draw. And yeah, this is this is a very poker-like approach to, uh, to chess, which I don't know if you can say this has never been attempted before. I'm pretty sure people always had this sort of an idea in their head uh, of what they're better at, and they would construct their strategy always keeping in mind that, you know, this is something I do better than my opponent. But I think game 12 of the uh, the Corona match was maybe the most striking example of somebody uh, foregoing a very, very clear edge because he felt that the uh, an even bigger edge was to be found elsewhere. Yeah, and just a really striking moment when you had Gary Kasparov, who of course wrote My Great Predecessors, all about what each world champion represented. Um, and Gary himself just couldn't get this decision. He was appalled by it. And yeah, many people were very, very shocked. I was in the studio covering the game, and uh, we were sort of somewhat behind because we don't get the live pictures. And people in chat were starting to say he offered a draw. And we were just laughing in the studio. We were sitting there with Anish Giri, and we were just having fun with this idea. And, and I think also Grishuk from Moscow, all three of us were just like, nah, nah, not going to happen ever. And then the the half-half flashed up on our screen, and we thought, hmm, this is really quite quite remarkable, because obviously this is Magnus, he knows how good his position is, it's not as if he doesn't understand he is much better. He came in for some very, very sharp criticism. Uh, he had a very nice comeback the, the the next day when he did win the tiebreak very convincingly, though. <laughs> yeah, totally. People, people were starting to wonder. What's the best poker at a chess tournament story you've heard, where somebody like got so involved in poker that it disrupted their chess tournament, or help them yeah i mean the 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 best story uh on the topic is i have once seen uh well not live actually because the 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 games ran deep into the night but that was in 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 the years of me actually following the game very closely and uh, i would open uh the uh, hsdb website every morning and check what happened and uh i remember during the chess olympiad in 2014 I opened the the HSDB in the morning and I found out that a player in that Olympiad uh, lost 200k overnight uh, playing the deuce game on on, on full tilt. That was when the the Chinese players were starting to to play in the biggest games and uh, that was a game which ran with like four regulars and the the biggest of the Chinese. If I stretch myself really hard I will remember the screen name but I, I can't at the moment. Uh, and that was a one-two uh, deuce game. Wow! So did you when you fu- when you saw this player in the playing hall? Did you give, go over and give him a big after hug the, after the game was over? And the thing was, uh, he played a six-hour game and wanted to win the match for his team against who? Against an Italian player mm-hmm. I, on on a, on a high board, obviously. So the match was won by him winning his game on the morning after he uh, uh, he lost five buy-ins in, in that deuce game. So once this was over, I came up to him and I said, so did not go that well, did it? He said, nah, didn't go particularly well. <laughs> and yeah, you like you, you need to be quite strong mentally too. That's an amazing example of uh, resilience, right? He was yeah. able to win the chess game after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I, I was kind of, I was afraid to 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 even approach him because I thought, I mean, he must not be in a particularly good place mentally. But it just didn't affect his chess play at all. But <laughs> let's just say that I think that this is an important point to leave the show on because sometimes people ask me what what is chess good for for poker players, and this is what it's good for if you are somebody who tilts. I remember when I was playing high stakes OFC 
often I would play bullet chess or scramble with friends if I was down swinging because I was like, I can just be dumb and not lose money. Yeah, that's that's a that's a, a good approach. Yeah, and uh, one good thing about playing Hearthstone instead of poker is that I wouldn't say it doesn't cost me any money, but the you know the money I paid for packs is uh, kind of uh, insignificant, and I don't need to worry about it. Another reason why I never would consider myself a, a, a pro poker player or even a good poker player is that the importance of uh, bankroll management, you know, you, you cannot be overstated. And I was, I never was really very much into proper B- BRM, so. Perhaps it was actually a blessing in disguise for this fellow at the Olympiad. Um, you did mention it was in the open section. And I, <laughs> who knows, maybe he saved losing another $200,000. Possibly, yeah. At that point, HSDB was, it progressed enough in its development that you could actually click through the hands. The hand that made him actually get up, I'm pretty sure he could have continued. I mean, he, he he's rolled deep enough to continue. But the hand that made him get up was, uh, he made a seven. And I think four bets went in on the turn. And then I think he lost with a number two. And that was like a... Oh, like Bryce this year. Yeah, yeah, like <laughs> like like Bryce, but uh, obviously for slightly for, for, for lower stakes because uh, I don't know exactly what Bryce's equity was in the tournament. If he wins this hand, as he should, because he would still be the shorty. But he would have a workable stack from that point, right? That was just so gross to watch. Oh, my God. But anyway, yeah. this, this guy lost with a number two as well. Yeah. So Possibly three, but he definitely made a seven. And uh, I think it went pat-pat and then four bets went in. And the Chinese guy broke something and made a better seven. You can see why you get up at this point because no matter no matter how uh, how well you adjust to these things, you you are somewhat upset. And I think the cap was that was probably like an an eighty k pot. So you're saying it's tilting the untiltable. Possibly. Yeah. Potentially. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> but that sounds eerily like the Bryce hand. But unfortunately for him, he didn't really have a choice. He was eliminated from the tournament yeah. after this very, very famous hand. Well, I'm going to let you go. But I, I should tell people that they can follow you on Paul Borta on Twitter. Of course, I'm going to link to that. You're also on Chess24 a lot doing commentary as well as on the Grand Chess Tour. And any other ways to follow you? Well, there's a YouTube video of you talking about poker for seven minutes, actually. <laughs> Eight, yeah. That's a fun video. Although it's, it's a lot less fun without the sub story. And I don't know if you if you want the whole sub story even probably shouldn't let's not hype it up too much because without without all the all the inside references it will still probably be funny but not nearly as funny and or tilting as it was for me at the time but to, to be short you were with your your cohort um grandmaster jan gustafsson who used to play poker professionally and you were getting trolled this is the one thing i will for those who will actually uh, search this out and watch this when you say i i was being trolled that implies sort of intent to troll from the other side. And I wasn't being... That's why it was so, you know, funny for outside observers and Jan in particular, who was having an absolute blast there sitting next to me and watching me, you know, boil. The person on the other side of the screen who was making all those comments and chat, he wasn't trolling. He was dead serious. It was all in earnest. And this is what made it so unbearable. So what's your favorite poker book? By the time I started uh, being reasonably serious about poker, it was basically all forums. Yeah, I yeah. was I was a reasonably constant uh, two plus tour, and I also spent quite a bit of time on the Gypsy Team forums, which are the the, the largest Russian chess uh, chess forum. If I had to name one book, it would probably be Razy on Stud Eight. I was actually joking because that was like a running joke of the video. But yeah, yeah. The, the thing about books and literature is that they're so freaking well suited to chess like chess and book is the perfect marriage poker 
videos and podcasts yeah. are the perfect marriage. M- much less so in poker. Yeah. But in particular, I think for something that is moving very quickly when, you know, the knowledge base expands extremely fast as No Limit or PLO, the games that are popular, the games that people invest a lot of time in thinking about. I mean, people are absolutely raving about the uh, the, the Andrew Brokosch uh, book, and maybe it's excellent. Probably is excellent, because as far as I can tell, even people who understand say it's a good book. Oh, it's uh, great. Yeah. yeah. So it's still possible to write a very good poker book. But still, the shift uh, the shift is very real towards videos and, uh, and, and podcasts, and to a lesser degree, I guess, forum posts where you can get people chiming in. But with, with games that are much less developed and much, much less development goes into them, such as you know, limit variants, and in particular, I think there's not much stud being played in general. I thought that book actually still had something to say. Although, still, I mean, talking to good players taught me a lot more than, than reading the book. Well, thank you so much, Grandmaster Peter Svidler. He often jokes and talks about poker, but I, we got some even more insight into how he thinks about the other game, PLO, No Limit Hold'em, poker in general. Well, of course, he's one of the very best chess players in the world. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and write a review. Your subscriptions, reviews, shares on social media truly helps motivate me as a quest for 169 intensifies. Also find me at US Chess Women, where I host another podcast, Ladies Night, and follow updates on the grid at Jen Shahadi on Twitter and Instagram. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent.